0: Colin and Alex, it is a honor to have you guys on the green room here with me today. Uh, We've had a couple of conversations together already, and what you guys are building over at Applied Bioplastics genuinely shocked me, purely because when I've been looking at this entire space of recyclable plastic or compostable plastic... um, many times we miss that the majority of plastic is being utilized in applications where we don't want it to be decomposing and uh, I'll, I'll let you guys go ahead and share a little bit more about your guys background and enlighten me and the rest of the audience uh, a bit more on the magnitude of the problem when it comes to really trying to decarbonize our plastic supply um, so Colin and Alex, uh, it is amazing to have you here. Would love to hear a little bit about your background and also for you to share a bit more on this problem you guys are attacking.
1: Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm Colin Arden, uh, CEO of Applied Bioplastics and, and co-founded the company, uh, with, uh, my co-founder. I'll let him introduce himself.
2: I'm Alex. I'm, uh, you know, co-founder with Colin. I'm chief impact officer of Applied Bioplastics. And, uh, you know, just to start off with the the background, um, it's kind of a fun story. But uh, essentially, you know, Colin and I were working here in Austin in the, you know, typically, you know, startup industry, tech, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, Colin was at a at a e banking company, and, and I was at a network monitoring software company. And, um, you know, essentially. I closed a deal that gave me the opportunity to to make some decisions about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It was just the you know world's biggest deal, to, at least for me, uh, and uh, and you know essentially uh, that led me to to you know hearing about the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar um, and and, ad- and deciding to address that uh, by by actually traveling over there and uh, creating a film in the world's largest refugee camp that won several major awards. It you know got picked up by a distributor. It's now on Amazon. Uh, Its name is Blossoms from Ash. But while I was there, I was was introduced to a fellow named uh, Dr. Mubarak Ahmed Khan. Um, He'd spent the last uh, 20 years of his retirement developing ways to make a plant called jute useful again. Uh, This plant had been uh, used by the British shipping empire, uh, was, was actually brought to India and Bangladesh uh, to, to make rope and sailcloth and sackcloth and all the things that you need to run a, a, a big shipping empire. Um, so, you know, in the 1980s, unfortunately, the industry and the demand for this completely collapsed as, as synthetic plastic fibers, which we're now seeing, you know, in the, in the form of microplastics all over the ocean. a terrible mistake to move away from, from natural fibers, but um, it, it destroyed the demand for, for, for jute and, and took a big bite out of the uh, the economic sectors in, in in uh india and bangladesh so when i was introduced to him and, and saw his products this this polymer polymerization of cellulose um i said wow this could this could change housing and i you know asked him if he'd like to work with me and he said no so i went home and i i finished my movie and i told colin about it and um And, uh, you know, Colin said, you know, you're thinking too small, man. I mean, like, you know, yes, you can make housing out of this. But think about all the possible applications in the durable polymer space uh, if if this if this translates, essentially. And so I can't believe you took no for an answer. We've got to go back. So in in uh, 2018, Colin and I quit our jobs and went to Bangladesh for three months to convince this inventor that uh, that we were the right guys to commercialize his ideas. And he eventually agreed. Uh, He joined our team and we've spent the last two years building a replacement for today's durable polymers. And essentially the issue here is that 57% of all polymers are durable polymers. You see most of the alternative plastics companies, as you mentioned, working on addressing the trash problem, which is LDPE and PET, you know, water bottles and grocery bags and other things like that. These are things that shouldn't ever be made out of plastic. You know, we, we've we've had cloth bags for millennia. We should we should really go back to those things. And, and so these alternative polymers Polymer companies are, are, are working on that and we're very glad that they are um, but there is a major segment of the market that is unaddressed by alternative plastics companies that is that is 50 57 percent of the market about um, it's it's polypropylene it's polyethylene it's uh, ABS and there's uh, you know polycarbonate there's a, there's a whole bunch of them and the thing is with this it, it, they face a problem of inevitability we have a a problem with you know running out of oil we, we are at peak oil. Uh, it's getting harder and more expensive to extract oil, so we need to stretch our supplies as much as possible. We can't be using these things for utensils and grocery bags and other things like that. We need to we need to save it for those durable applications. But even that's not enough. So what applied bioplastics does is we actually stretch those supplies more. We we use natural fiber to fill polymers. Number one, it decarbonizes those plastics. So we're emitting less greenhouse gases uh, for for every single application. The second thing is they cost the same. And the third thing is we can make our plastic on the same machines that everybody makes plastic on today. So there's really no change to the bottom line of the companies that need to adopt this, but they really need to adopt this. Like I said, durable polymers are going to run out and, and we need to stretch them as much as possible. So that's what we do here at Applied Bioplastics.
0: So, so that's, there's so much to unpack there. Because when, I mean, first off, from an outsider looking into the plastics industry, the, the traditional response that many people tend to default into looking at is like, oh, we need biodegradable plastics, because plastics are so convenient, they're so cheap. And biodegradable plastics tend to not actually be a economic replacement there. But then, we tend to always overlook the plastics that we may use in airplanes and cars or in our pipes because you mentioned like things like PVC and ABS um, being those durable polymers. So what I'd, I would ask you is by reducing the petroleum concentration in the plastic making process with what I'm assuming is jute, Um, or whatever these plant fibers are that were popular during uh, the British Empire (laughs) or the shipping empire at that point in time. Um, are, are Are these fibers actually reducing the cost of manufacturing for plastics manufacturers? Because if so, then it almost seems like it's just a matter of how much can you guys supply of this chemical compound or this Um, composite material um, to these manufacturers so that they can meet global demand. Um, Where does it fall on that economic side? Because I think that's a critical question that many people from investors to even people who play in the clean tech space tend to want to know about when it comes to plastics and more importantly, alternative plastics.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So in the short term, uh, you know, we're able to provide product at price parity with traditional petrochemical products, as we continue to scale our production, I think we will see some efficiencies of scale where we, we can offer some cost savings as well, um, and, and that, that helps uh, our customers. That also helps the producers. Um, you know, as, as Alex was talking about, we can help stretch that uh, petrochemical supply. So when you see a price spike, like we did uh, back in February during the winter storms here in Texas, you know, polypropylene prices went up to uh, $3,700 per metric ton they nearly quadrupled in price, Um, whereas our plant fiber uh, stayed the same price. So uh, you can see some price stabilization and and some cost reduction, um, especially as uh, oil becomes more scarce and polymer prices continue to rise. Another good thought on that is, is, um, you know, thinking about the fiber that we use and the
2: economic benefits of it to to farmers and smallholders, there are other ways to get fiber as well. So, you know, we're we're doing experiments with agricultural waste and invasive species. So we can kill two birds with one stone. If you've got an invasive, you know, plant species, we can remove it for you and then do something useful with it. I mean most invasive species, what you see happening is people will burn what they what they aren't going to use. That that goes the same for agricultural waste. So that releases a ton of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere and and people are just burning it because they have nothing better to do with it. We can take that stuff. We can take those invasive species. We can take that agricultural waste. We can process it and turn it into a valuable composite. And in a lot of cases, people are going to pay us to take that away from them, right? Because they, they, otherwise, they have to pay for burning it, right? So, so you know, as far as the economics go, as Colin said, you know, once we get to scale and once we are, you're, we're, we're using a bunch of different types of, of agricultural products, whether they be intentionally grown, invasive, or waste there's going to be some serious efficiencies to, 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 uh, you know, both our margins and to our customers' bottom lines.
0: So does that mean that you guys aren't affected by the seasonality? Because obviously when it comes to plastic, uh, we're making tons, you know, probably per day, right? Is
2: 120 million metric tons of polypropylene per year, a day, 20 million metric tons per year. (laughs) per year but it's still in the millions per day right
0: right no yeah no you're you're not wrong that the volume is so high but then the natural i think insight that you guys could share a lot of light onto is what does it really take for a plant-based fiber to to be able to meet the global demand for plastics Because even if we say, hey, we only want to fill that 57% of the total market, and sure, you know, I'm sure you guys have developed something really unique in terms of IP um, and the PhD that you guys are working with that actually created the core IP for the company. Um, You guys have something unique, but is there anything necessarily restricting other players to coming in and then actually helping or hitting that 57%? Because I I doubt a plastic manufacturer is going to want to make the move over to applied bioplastics or a plant-based solution unless, number one, the economics check out, and number two, the supply can meet the demand that they're facing on a day-to-day basis. And you guys have already addressed the economics and the, you know, no process changes really because you guys can inject right into what they're already doing today. How, how do you guys think about the entire side of, well, are we going to have enough supply to be able to meet the kind of global demand we have for plastic today?
2: Sure. So as as I was saying earlier, the you know there's there's a ton of different types of fiber that we can use. And and it may seem like, well, agricultural waste, how much of that really could there be? But there's a lot. Um humanity, you know, wastes a great deal of, of its polymers. In fact, we were speaking with an investor today who had an excellent idea, which is that Many oil companies that we seek to partner with, um, you know, to improve their product um, have included ethanol in their products. And so far, we've stayed away from using any corn-based products because there are some major issues with corn production, um, you know, raising uh, forests and, and, uh, you know, clear-cutting in order to make room for corn so that people can, you know, make ethanol. However, surprisingly, there is an, an enormous amount of corn waste that's out there that is created by these oil companies. So what if we could take their, their, again, agricultural waste, turn it into a filler for the product that they are making with the corn in the first place. So, you know, the scale of the problem, you're, you're right to identify that. Um, that being said, however, given how many options there are, you, you've got to think of us as kind of the the bell labs and this goes for the, you know, what about competition, right? You, you, if you think of us as the bell labs, we develop the formulations. We do, the ideal processing of each type of agricultural product whether it be intentionally grown invasive or simply waste Um, we can license that out to other fiber treatment companies we we actually want to encourage the foundation of other fiber treatment companies because you know we've we've developed the science you've got your local supply of fiber and your local you know plastic manufacturer right you'd like to start a business doing what we do fantastic let us sell you the formulation you can process your own fiber and sell it to your local thing. We don't want to be the bottleneck. We want to create tons of solutions that can address millions of tons of production and, and spread that out to as many people as possible. And, and again, I mean, this is really low CapEx. I mean, I, I would encourage anybody out there who is, is looking to start a business, consider fiber treatment as, as a business, because we, we want you to be one of our suppliers so that you can help us serve our customers
0: it's kind of like uh the i guess you could call it like how SaaS companies or marketplace companies work in the sense that uh you know they they provide the platform and your guys platform is this ip on on how to use fibers or plant-based fibers and attach them to i guess petroleum-based chemical solutions so that you can in fact Build something just as good as traditional PVC or other kinds of durable plastics or polymers, as you guys have mentioned. So so it seems it, it seems like you guys have been thinking about really focusing on decarbonization, because everything you've mentioned to to this point is well, hey, if we use corn uh, fibers, well, there might be significant decarbon uh, carbon. Uh, there might be a significant carbon footprint um, for using corn as opposed to you know, jute or using I don't know, eggplant, right? So, how how have you guys been thinking about? remaining a part of this circular economy which seems to be one of the key founding values you guys really have when you're approaching the decarbonization of you know these durable plastics and it seems like plastic has almost been synonymous with environmental pollution and with uh, <laughs> with uh, carbon <laughs> emissions so how are you guys approaching changing and shining a new light um all the way end to end cradle to cradle in a way um with your guys fiber based approach to plastic production or plastic like yeah, so. production
1: Great question. Um, So one thing I want to make clear is our technology is compatible with recycled seed stock, and we're committed to incorporating both post-industrial as well as post-consumer recycled seed stock into our offerings. So uh, we play well with the circular economy. Uh, Our material is also recyclable. Uh, With that being said, only about 9% of polypropylene gets recycled today. The remainder goes to the landfill. And so our our view on this is, uh, you know, for the 91% of polypropylene going to the landfill, let's have it doing something beneficial while it's there. Let's have it continuing to sequester carbon indefinitely. As opposed to something like uh, a, a bioplastic like PLA, which, sure, it's biodegradable, but during the process of biodegradation, it emits methane, and it emits uh, you know greenhouse gases that are harmful to the environment.
0: Really? So then, how do you sequester carbon when your plant-based approach ends up in a landfill
2: so the the plant cycle um you know essentially when when a plant is alive what it's doing is it's it's taking in co2 and releasing oxygen but that that co2 it it isn't just you know it, it doesn't the plant doesn't eat it right like it goes into the soil and it stays in the plant as well um so that carbon in the soil that's great but once you harvest it there's still carbon in the plant itself, right? It's a carbon-based life form just like us. So essentially, when you trap that plant material into the polymer, and, and with our particular science, it, it is it is polymerized itself. It's, it's like trapping a fly in amber, essentially. It stays there indefinitely. So that, that it's, it actually acts as a carbon sink. It's not an active carbon sink. It's a passive carbon sink for as long as it's sitting there in the landfill.
0: And is that is that significant of a carbon sink, meaning let's say tomorrow, magically applied bioplastics had partners and licensees, and now all 57% of global plastic contains your guys formulation? What's what's the kind of magnitude we're talking when when you're talking about carbon sequestration?
2: Essentially you'd be taking about two hundred and eighty seven million cars off the road right
0: off the bat if you guys filled that full fifty seven percent
2: actually that's with eight percent market penetration from us
0: <laughs> okay so so there there is there is significant uh, impact. Um, I'll leave it at that but um it, <laughs> I guess switching gears because it, it's it seems like this is something that should have been implemented a long time ago. Then, what's what's been the main reason a plant based fiber solution? If if really you're saying hey, you know, with eight percent you know of applied bioplastic solution out in the market, we're meeting cost parity with traditional plastics. And with 8%, we're taking the effect of 280 million cars off the road. Um, and on top of that, we're sequestering carbon post-life when it's in a landfill. Um, and it's recyclable in nature. Plus, we can tap into various different kinds of plant fibers that may also be emitting carbon because of the way they're being utilized today. So it, it, it sounds like well, why wouldn't we be doing this? But what's kept the market from implementing this until today? Because it almost sounds too good to be true.
1: Yeah, so uh, um, there's a few different factors. Uh, You know, first of all, there are a few fairly major challenges with, you know, developing this technology related to adhesion of the fiber with the the polymer matrix, um, as well as, you know, Processing and treating the, the fiber in, in a way that effectively lets it uh, you know, polymerize, um, but I guess you know outside of the the technological and operational hurdles, um, I think it 's a combination of you know brands not being interested or willing to switch over to a decarbonized solution because they didn 't have any any justification to do so until now it 's only been the past few years when consumers are starting to wake up to the fact that emissions are a major problem and it's something where you know we're driving off a cliff and we we need to slow down the bus you know so it just the timing wasn't really right up until now and as a result there wasn't really interest in commercializing this technology
0: and and is that because the problem wasn't felt you believe by these different manufacturers and players in the space that hey until people actually complain that we're using plastic packaging that harms the environment there's no real reason for us to switch a part of our supply chain when we can focus on our core product.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think if you look at, and, you know, I don't want to alienate our future customers and licensees here, but I, I will say that, that, you know, the people who were in charge in the 1970s and 1980s of the large extractive companies, the ones that are taking resources out of the ground, had a vested interest in continuing to do things the way that they were doing them, Right. You can't you can't really assail the characters of the people who are in charge today. Um, but at the time, there was a big, you know, almost propagandistic push to get consumers feeling like their consumption was truly driving greenhouse gases and their consumption was a problem. And, it, it, you know, even Earth Day was a creation of a, of a lobbying group that was funded by uh, Big Oil, um, you know, making consumers feel as though it was their problem for not recycling. But the reality is that it, they were resistant to change. They were making lots of money by not changing um, and and they were helping people feel like it is our each of our individual responsibilities to to reduce the species uh, you know carbon emissions. Um, so I, I think it's it's almost like the electric car, right it, one, one a viable one was invented in the 1970s. the, the companies that uh, were doing things with uh, you know oil-based, uh, uh, vehicles said, you know what, this is a threat to the way we do things and we don't want to change. So we're going to buy it and we're going to squish it. Um, so, I mean, the reality is that natural fiber composites have been around since 1945. And, uh, you know, the the unfortunately, that science hasn't really progressed because there's a vested interest in not funding it. That being said, the reason that we're different and the reason that we have this technology in our hands now is, is truly due to the heroism and, and the you know, the, the guy who, who put his own dollars or taka, really, because he was in Bangladesh, uh, into developing this solution, he didn't need anybody else. He didn't need anybody else's funding. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make something that works here um, and that's cost effective here. And, you know, because I'm retired and I've already got all my money, it doesn't really matter to me. I've just got my lab and I'm going to keep plugging away until I have a solution. And we were lucky enough to to be able to capitalize on that and, and bring him along with us and, and take his dream to the rest of the world here. But, um, but yeah, I mean, institutional research was not funded into these areas. And I think that's a big reason why, although the tech has been available for at least two decades, nobody's nobody's done anything with it.
0: So it seems like it's really market timing more so than anything else really is that there's finally a pull from the market for solutions like this and serendipitously you guys stumbled upon the right technology the right co-founders and had the right connections to be able to to get as far as you guys have so far so that that makes that that (laughs) i mean i think the only way you can look at that it is blessed but um i guess with that being said the the one parting question i'd love to ask uh from you guys is what do you guys see in this market happening right now that gets you guys really excited that most people tend to not see what's something that you guys have learned from playing in the plastic space beyond the fact that 57 percent of all plastic is not supposed to be designed to be biodegradable that's still blowing my mind but What's that really key market movement or trend happening that's exciting to anyone who's in the plastics industry day to day like you guys that people may not be able to see from the outside in other sections, sectors of clean tech or investors that might be fascinated in the space?
1: Sure. I mean, so something that excites me, I'll go with two things. One is the amount of activity in the space is. Absolutely incredible you know the the number of companies and and the the quality of of companies that are working on uh, fixing the problem uh, give me hope that you know in the next ten twenty years you know we'll, we'll be doing a lot a lot better uh, as a species. The other aspect of this is the the degree of pull from brands for solutions is uh, you know great like I, I don't want to say overwhelming but uh brands like really
0: is it genuine Paul the now
1: there is there really is and, and you know we're seeing that so um you know having a lot of really great conversations with brands that are truly looking to find better alternatives now where a few years ago they they weren't really looking so I'm really excited about that trend
0: awesome
2: I, I want to echo that when when we started out to just even two years ago we you know one of the first things that Colin and I did was we we prospected we cold called we said would you be interested Right. And, you know, shout out to uh, CVS Health. They were the first one who was just like, yes, we've, we've been looking for solutions, but almost everybody else turned us down. Right. And here we are two years later. You see the, the major court case with, with Shell yesterday, um, the activist investors at, at Chevron and Exxon taking over and saying, we are going to make a commitment. All, like all in the last year, you've seen all of these written commitments from all of these massive brands saying, we recognize now that this is a problem. Whether whether we were denying it before or just ignoring the problem, we recognize that it's a problem and that we're ready to be part of the solution. And, and that's super encouraging. I mean, I, I feel like, as you said earlier, like blessed, right? Like we 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 serendipitously found this technology. We built the right team to scale it out. Um, and then just as we're really getting going and we're, we're about to raise investment to establish our, our fiber pretreatment facilities to, to get this stuff going, all of a sudden, in the last six months, you see all of these brands, just commitment in 10 years, commitment in 20 years. Sometimes you, you see the 2050 commitments, which is a little disappointing, but um, you know, the, the 2030 commitments and the 2040 commitments are amazing. You know, So there's that. And then the other piece is that you see a lot of investors looking at this space as well. Um, you know, the, I think the problems with alternative plastics that biodegrade are becoming well known. Um, the endocrine issues that, that can result from different kinds of chemicals um, and, and, uh, in, in the polymer industry as a whole are becoming known. So there's, it, it, it's just it's less blind capitalism and more, hey, how do we intentionally build the future that we want? I mean, like we don't want a Mad Max hellscape for our children, so like let's let's do something a little bit different, and and so that's incredibly encouraging. Um, the other piece is is institutional buy-in. Um, you know, banks. Uh, you know, the the big oil. Like I think they're always going to be the last to change, no matter what the issue is. But we're seeing that today, and that that's super exciting. Absolutely,
0: awesome. So I guess then, uh, is, is applied bioplastics hiring? And if so, you guys are welcome to plug that. And, uh, regardless, if people wanted to stay in touch with either of you guys or had some questions about how you guys are delivering impact and wanted to continue the conversation beyond here, how could they reach you? How could they follow applied bioplastics and, maybe even potentially join the team at some time in the future.
2: Yeah, so we, we did uh, recently start an internship program. It's, it's currently full up, but we do expect to be hiring close to the end of the summer again. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at abioplastics. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram as well. Um, and if you'd like to reach out with questions or, or like to submit your resume, uh, please email us at hello at appliedbioplastics.com.
0: Awesome, well, Alex, Colin, it's a pleasure. And thank you for coming on.
2: Thanks so much for having us, Hornup.
1: Thanks, Hornup.
0: Cool stuff. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you are listening on Spotify, please make sure to add this to your favorite episodes and also consider sharing it on social. And if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, Make sure to leave a review with uh, your thoughts from this episode, and of course, to also share and subscribe to this show. The Green Room is brought to you by The Impact. There's a free newsletter that you can find on readtheimpact.com, which shares plenty of insights as well as brand new startups that we're finding that are pre series A, which could be opportunities for you, your fund, or potential co founders to really want to check out and learn from. So with that being said, this is Swarna Vespajari from The Impact. It's been great to have you, and I'll see you in the next one.